I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Yeah, does the disturb. zoom vo- is the zoom voice in uh, it have an English accent over in in London? Is it like recording in progress? You know what? It happened like literally a split second ago, and I couldn't. <laughs> do it. I know, it right? has a robot accent. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. Um, it does have a robotic Corny accent in, in it. Uh, okay, uh, this is going to be a real treat. Um, we are sitting down with Chris Hellinga, um, the author of "Glittering a Turd." Probably the best memoir great, title I've ever heard in my entire title. life, and the uh, and the founder of Copperfeel, uh, which we will we will get into for you guys, just so you so you know, Copperfeel is a, a breast cancer awareness charity. That's also a wonderful London. I know, wonderful man. I know. Um, and the thing that I love about Copperfeel, what they're up to, is promoting early detection of breast cancer by encouraging women under thirty to regularly check their breasts. Mm. Um, I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but uh, but first... But first, we want to ask you, how did you get so good at naming things? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is a skill. It really is. <laughs> it is. It is. Oh, there's lots of shit names for things, aren't there? So we just wanted it to be really obvious, especially for the charity, mm. to kind of for, to make people understand what we do. And, and a lot of people don't really understand from Copperfield and... Um, or they they might call it Copperfield, and they'll say, "Oh, why did you call it Copperfield?" Like, <laughs> as if as if I would call a charity Copperfield. Don't you get it? <laughs> like yeah. what? As it's soon as I funny, as soon as I heard it, it was obvious to me. Uh, Chris, you are you're based in London, correct? You're you're in you're in the UK. Um, I'm in the UK, but I'm down in Cornwall, Ooh, down in okay. beautiful Cornwall. I used okay. to be in London, uh, but not anymore. And is is uh, is Cornwall? Is that where you were, were? Were you like born and raised in, mm-hmm. or what? What brought you back to brought you to Cornwall? Um, I was born in Germany, and then I was brought to the UK by my mum, who's British. And we moved to the Midlands, and then when I started the charity, I moved to London because I realised that's where all the movers and shakers are. Yeah, and then yeah, totally. uh, I was there for six years, and then was a bit over it, and. Finally had the opportunity to step away from the charity because, well, my aim was always for it to not need me. Um, mm. And I'm, I was so proud to get to that point. And my sister, uh, my twin sister, lives in Cornwall because she studied here and didn't leave. Met her husband here. So I just knew it was an obvious choice mm. for me to come down here. It's beautiful. Yeah, are you, are, you, um, are you a real twin or a fake twin? Oh, here we go. Uh, Hot take. Here we go. Uh, real. Are you a twin? <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. a twin too. <laughs> I, are you real or right? 
I'm real. He's real. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine a non-twin asking a twin that question? I know. Oh my god, know, right? how disrespectful! I know. But yeah, Brian. Brian's a real twin. It's a twin thing. I, Only I, twins can ask that yeah. question. Chris, I feel an immediate, uh, strong connection with you now. Yeah, great. Excellent. <laughs> twins, a, twins are the best. We did a, a podcast recording for um, some twin friends recently. It's called "Shit, I Married a Twin." And <laughs> uh, it's it's great. It's really great. And the reason we were on as guests is because one of the twins just had a baby, and we kind of we filled the the moments for her. Um, but yeah, twin chat is the best Ooh. chat. I yeah. was uh, I was I was uh, I wasn't secretly bummed when I have a daughter, and I was, but I I was like I was so fingers crossed that we would have twins because I grew up with Brian yeah. and like Brian and his brother are my like two childhood bestest of friends. And I was like, man, it would be sweet to have twins. And it never came to be. So mm. <sighs> just keep on trying, Taylor. You just keep on <laughs> trying. Right. And, and right. maybe one day, right. maybe someday. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I, I, Chris, I wonder not to stay on the twin thing for too long, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Um, I've sometimes had the thought that I might actually be my brother. In the sense that, Whoa. like, like <laughs> Twilight Zone. Yeah. In the sense Whoa. that, like, I I always wonder. I mean, I think a lot of babies look the same anyway, even if they're not related. Yeah, and oh, I, see I always think like I my saying. parents probably put us in the crib one night, yep. and then came into the bedroom in the morning and were like, "Fuck." Uh, yeah. That one's Brian and that one's Dennis. And, and like, how many times did that go back and forth? <laughs> you know, right. like, right. yeah. I mean, like, I've always been me, but like. Was I actually the one that was born first? Like, yeah. I've, I've but your name could be influential. Like if they messed, you, if they mixed you up, like if you they actually named you Dennis, you'd yeah. still be Brian, right? But just with, with the different with Dennis' name. name, and who knows what kind of influence? That's you know butterfly effect. What does that have on the rest of your life? Who so, knows? Chris, do you think your parents ever mixed you up? <laughs> wow. Um, you know those little armbands they put around babies. To I think probably with their names on and hospital number or something. Yeah. Mum kept ours on for weeks, <laughs> but just in case. But I thought you were going to say kept them on for five Ever. years. <laughs> and my mum, my mum actually uh, uh, painted painted one of our fingernails. That's smart actually, too. Oh, that's still, a good idea. Mine, that's still, mine is still painted right now. Yeah, See, that'd be very go. hard because baby fingernails are so incredibly small. <laughs> she actually just They're drew on my hand with yeah, marker. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. She's like, I painted your fingernail. There's just marker on my hand. Yeah. Um, well, I love I love how uh, I love the direction this conversation t- uh, went right off the bat. Uh, I'm, I'm going to rein it in. We're going to bring it back to Chris and uh, her experience with cancer. In particular, we're talking, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, breast cancer, correct? Correct. Um, and here's a wild little tidbit for the two of you. Chris has been living with stage four cancer for 14 years. Whoa. Oh, wow. Now, when I read that, to, like my brain almost ha- goes like almost short circuits where I go, like, is that, that possible? Happen? Yeah, right. That seems like a really long time for someone to live with stage four breast cancer. So, and and I feel like a little bit of an idiot because nine years of doing the show, I feel like I should know this or I should know more. But how? What does that mean? Like stage four cancer. Whenever I hear stage four cancer, I always just think. Oh wow, that's that seems like the like that's the that's the boss level of cancer. Like that is the yeah. final boss of the video game, and it's it's going to be really hard to beat. So, yeah. um, fourteen years of stage four. Like, what is? 
how, how is that possible? Um, yeah, it is the most advanced um, uh, stage. Um, there are obviously stage three, stage two, but um, stage four means it's gone to other organs and it's travelled its way around the rest of your body from the original site, which was obviously my breast. Um, I was diagnosed from the get-go with stage four because for so long I had no idea that I could have cancer. Um, I went to the GP when it was probably already advanced um, and they ignored it and said it was very typical for a young person to have uh, lumpy boobs, um, which is true, but... um, only in one boob wasn't such a, but mm. w- was a bit of a red flag. Um, but nothing was done about it for a long time. And then, um, so it took eight months for my original visit to the doctor to actually being told it was um, not only breast cancer, but it had spread to my spine. Wow. So it was already in my bones. Yeah. And uh, I mean, people who aren't familiar with you or your work, they can't see you. This is an audio podcast. Um, but uh, you're quite young. And so this was 14 years ago. How old yeah. were you when you got diagnosed? I was 23. Wow. So, but 22 when I first noticed that something wasn't quite right. Mm. I know that we'll get, <clears throat> I know that we'll talk uh, more about this. And I'm sure that uh, <laughs> because I know that it's a big topic of the, of the show, but like uh, of this conversation today. But um, I am continuously uh, surprised at the standards of, uh, it's probably, I know it varies from country to country, but it seems like mm. mammogram, like the standard for starting to check and doing mammograms um, is, is quite high. Like the age is quite high. And, I, and I, the reason I think that is because I feel, and maybe, maybe it's because I'm, I don't think it is, but maybe it's because I'm so close to it and we talk to people who have breast cancer. But I feel like it's also something that I see in my life, people that I'm mm-hmm. not having conversations with mm-hmm. via the podcast, but people that are you know, connected to me in, from one or two or three degrees that are getting bre- breast cancer, being diagnosed mm-hmm. with breast cancer in their, in their late 20s or their early 30s. And, yeah. and yet this standard of like when you get checked for breast cancer... It's so, so it's almost like society carries on with this sort of like, wow, you got diagnosed when you were so young. Mm. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to be uncommon, but, yet the standard is, uh, is still yeah. so high. I think high. the point that you're making too, Taylor, is that like, it's almost like from the healthcare perspective that the perception is the opposite. Like, oh, you're so young, it couldn't be breast cancer. Right, yeah. Yeah, right. in Canada, just for context, in Canada, if you're 40 to 49 years old, they say uh, they they encourage you to talk to your doctor about your risk for breast cancer, um, and if you are fifty to seventy four, they then say you should be having a mammogram every two years. Okay. Um, uh, and if you're seventy five or older, you should be asking your doctor if a mammogram is even the right decision for you. But like, so to your point there, Taylor, like twenty three to fifty, that is a that's big. That's a big, yeah. big gap, in, right? Yeah. Big time. And so, I, like, I feel like if I was a 23-year-old woman right now in Canada, um, the thought to be examining my breasts, like, you know, every so often in the shower or something, it would, I, I don't think I would be thinking of it at all. As a, as a, as a male, I mean, I've, <laughs> I, I, sh, I, I know that I should be doing this, but I never check my balls, like, ever. Like, I'm never... 
I'm always touching my, fondling my balls, but never like with a, with a mindful intention of thinking about what mm. I'm doing. I'm doing it more so like just, just thinking about. I do. I do. Having a nice time. disclosure while fondling my nuts. Um, um, Chris, when you, when you, when you, do you remember if when you first, this is something that we learned in a conversation. Um, I don't know. This was many months ago now, like, but probably six months ago, maybe around that time we had a conversation about breast cancer and we were talking about the, um, like the different types of breast tissue, um, like density, like the, 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 I think it was like three or four, um, types of breast density that somebody could have and how that can lead to like, probably I'm assuming what, what you went through was saying, Oh, you you know, maybe you just have denser breast tissue and it just feels like you have lumps. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. We hear that a lot. But that's um, actually one of the main reasons that um, mammograms aren't offered to younger people is because younger people have, have got, in general, denser breasts and mm. a, a mammogram won't necessarily show up um, ah. mm. a cancerous lump or cancerous symptom. So that's that's why. And I think I was definitely like, me and my friends all had mums who would have been invited for their mammograms when they turned 40 or 50. <laughs> and and then so in our heads, we always thought, this is a disease that mums get. Yeah. This is a disease that grandmas get. So we're not going to automatically think, oh, maybe I should do something. Um, I won't get invited for a mammogram, but I should maybe check my boobs. Like that would, never, mm. why would that cross our minds? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why obviously Copperfield, we decided to, create copper fields because we just thought okay so there isn't a test as such um although maybe there'll be a blood test at some point let's hope so um and it this is about knowing your body Mm. and um if you touch it then you're more likely to know it yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I was kind of, I, I thought perhaps we would get into this later in the conversation, but we're kind, we're here now, and I, I, I feel like it would be beneficial maybe to kind of dive into um, the, you know, so, so what you just said there, uh, someone in their twenties or you know early thirties, checking their breasts themselves because maybe a mammogram isn't the best course of action due to the the breast density. Um, what what are there are there is there like a specific way or a um uh, a sort of like guideline that you would give to someone when they go to check their breasts cuz again like back to like me like like checking my my testicles i don't even th- i don't even think i would know what i'm looking for you know like I, I don't know i don't know i don't know if i if if let's say my finger ran over something that like was abnormal i don't even know to, i don't even know if i could tell if that was the case and I'm sure there's women out there that maybe find themselves in a similar position where it's like, okay, sure, I can I can check my breasts, but like, how do I know what I'm even looking for? Um, is there is there sort of a guideline, or are there specific things that you should be keeping an eye out for when giving yourself um, a breast exam? Yes, and I hope that after this, you will be googling, you know, some of the signs and symptoms of testicular cancer and work that one out for yourself for yourself because <laughs> yeah. I can't help with that <laughs> please space. tell me tell yeah. me <laughs> what am I looking for um but well, yeah when it comes to breast cancer it's uh, what we really try and encourage is not for you to like 
know every single sign and symptom, even though we do provide things like shower stickers as a little prompt um, and a little reminder of some of the things that you should be looking out for or feeling for. But this is very much about knowing what is normal for you. So if I had, before I went to the GP, um, been checking myself for X number of years, as soon as I had got boobs, basically, then I would have known for sure that this lump in my breast was not normal. It didn't, you know, it didn't um, coincide with my cycle or anything like that. It was, I would have had the confidence to say, you don't know my my boobs. You're not touching them every month. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, this needs investigating. Mm -hmm. I think if if you're both on the better playing field um, when you're speaking to your doctor and you know that what's good, what's normal for you, Mm. then you're going to have better outcomes. So so a good sign is to like identify or notice, like if you're doing it over time, something that's changing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned um, that it didn't, like if you if you found something that didn't coincide with your cycle, do yeah. do women have things that, like, does it sometimes feel different depending on where you're at in your yeah. menstrual cycle? Yeah. And that might be totally normal if that's happening mm. every month. And that's yeah, right. totally right. normal. And then nine times, nine out of ten lumps that you go to the doctors with are not cancer. Um, and, and it's not always about a lump. You know, there's skin textures. Your nipple can become inverted, and all these little things that just are not normal. Interesting. Uh, nipple inversion is is a sign of potential breast cancer. Wow, I never knew that. I mean, it's a, it sounds wow. like a, it's like really like a a uh, like a familiar like a familiarity, like building that familiarity, yeah. finding your base, finding whatever your yes. baseline yeah. is. Because like I feel the same as you do in terms of not. Not not checking with intention. Yeah, but I but at the same time feel like if I was like if 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 something was, I would notice very quickly if something was not right, like a glitch right. in the matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. You know, like yeah. when you walk into a room and something's off, and you mm. go like something's not something's mm. different here. I can sense it. Yeah, you know, you or just, at least you hope you would. Mm. Yeah, but again, I think I think I think I would, but that's because of a familiarity. Like if yeah. I. If if I whatever whether it's like through stigma and and I know we're just like we're just making analogous um, comparisons here breast cancer and testicular cancer. Um, if I if if I whatever came with uh, w- was was living my life with the idea of like stigma around that or any number of different things the way that I grew up whatever the environment that I grew up mm-hmm. in that 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 was like not something that I <coughs> was paying attention to. Yeah. Then I could very much see how that would be, mm, right. you know, very different for somebody else. Chris, I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask, as as like a a young twenty year old, twenty three year old, um, who didn't even consider the fact that breast cancer might be mm. something that you you had, and and you mentioned that it it sort of had taken quite a bit of time for you to um, even go to see the GP. What was it that eventually made you think, oh, something's up? Maybe I should go to see my doctor. Um, my mum and my sister, um, we were on holiday in Barcelona. And I just said, I've noticed this over some time. And um, I was wondering, do you have this very hard area in your boob? And both of them said, absolutely not. Um, when we get back, you're going to make an appointment to see the GP. And that was when it all kicked off. Mm. But, you know, that original GP she was our family doctor 
And she just said, oh, I just suggest you take some evening primrose oil to help with the tenderness. Wow. Did the, did the GP wow. check you physically? Like, did they make an assessment? Yeah, okay. yeah she did. She did. Hmm. And then when I, I actually had plans to go, because I was 23 and I had plans to do life stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I had plans to go to China not long after, be there during the Olympics. And the last thing I wanted her to say is, you can't go because we need to do some more tests. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you don't want anyone to put life on hold or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's really, my, it was so far from my thought. The word cancer wasn't even in my head. Totally. So um, maybe if it had been, I would have taken, I would mm. have said, I've got time. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. It's an interesting, also, it's an interesting yeah. psychological space, you know, because like when I go to the doctor and I have an issue, like I, I will, and this has especially changed in the last couple of years, like I will, I'm much more apt to make an appointment with the doctor when I, when I think something that might be wrong. But really, but really when I get there, I feel like subconsciously, I am making a case to the doctor totally for why I, for why it's okay yeah. for yeah, why yeah. for why like I'm here because like I think I should but really I think I'm fine and really and and I will and I and I want them to tell me that I'm fine mm-hmm. because I'm like well because why wouldn't I and if they do tell you you're fine then Perfect. you're obviously off going to, to believe that off to the races I mean, yeah I, like if I, I'm imagining Chris being in your situation and hearing your mom and sister tell you like oh that's something you might want to get checked and then you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you oh don't worry about it you're okay yeah. then of course you're going to think you're okay yeah 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 that's exactly what i wanted to hear mm-hmm. and then um, but yeah one of the um one of the reasons that people don't go to see their gp from the research that we've done is because they don't want to waste their doctor's time yeah they honestly think but i just think what what do you think they're there for yeah yeah, yeah. It's literally their job <laughs> yeah i feel that uh, i feel that actively yeah i made a doctor's yeah. appointment last week and that was like that was my primary thought was mm. is this worth the doctor's time am i yeah. wasting the doctor's it's funny time? i would have thought that was a canadian thing but I, but it turns out not so much there's a strong we have yeah. a strong we have yeah. a strong relationship so with so people. then chris what what was it then that if you you know you heard from the doctor you then assume that everything is fine they've told you everything is fine what what was it that then led you to go back um because the lump was growing and i couldn't lie on my stomach at night um it was so painful um so when i came back from china i went back to the gp and it was a different person this time because my previous gp was on holiday she's always on holiday and um yeah it was just this very arrogant man who said well we examined you six months ago it's not going to be anything bad now Hmm. so that's all i got oh my god oh my goodness yeah and then um i went home and my mom said i'm i'm not accepting that i think you need Mm. to go back again and i saw my original gp and i said i need to be referred i don't think this is (coughs) i i need proper answers mm. as to why this is happening and um she she agreed and she finally referred me but even mm. when i got to the breast clinic where they can do you know biopsies and mammograms and things they said well you've only just come off the pill let's just wait for three weeks to see if that thing mm. that settles things down oh my goodness and and i was 
I was kind of angry, but I didn't say anything. I didn't mm. say anything. I was just um, really confused by that, but equally couldn't argue against it. I didn't feel like I could argue against it. And then eventually uh, I went back, and by this point I had a bloodstained T-shirt because I was, um, yeah, the symptoms had progressed quite somewhat. And then, yeah, I had a biopsy and a mammogram, which was so painful, yeah. given that the mm. size of the tumour in my breast and then eventually told it has it was breast cancer i uh i it, it we we just recently um were at an event where we were talking um with a number of patients about the the sort of like gap between patients and healthcare providers and like the the sort of issues with communication there and it was in particular, this event was was covering cardiovascular events. And there were three people on this panel that were women. And all three of them had very similar uh, um, experiences in trying to receive a diagnosis, um, which was, you know, each of them saw upwards of six cardiologists before they were taken seriously, um, which is just like astounding to think that someone has to go through something like that to receive a diagnosis when, and again, there's a, a great example, a physician at this, this same event said to the patients, like, here's the thing. We are the, we are the experts in how to treat and deal with these things, but you, the patient, you are the expert with what's going on with your body. And to think that someone can walk into a, a physician's office and say, I am here to tell you what's happening in my body and for that physician to give a response like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's all in your head. It, there, there's, nothing, there's actually nothing wrong. It's, this is probably normal. We're just not going to actually look into it. Like, it's just, it's just so astounding to me. And that is one of the, that's one of the perfect examples of like what prevents someone, I think, from being capable of advocating for themselves. And in your case... Thank God your mother was there to advocate for you. Um, you know, I look at my mom as, as, as my fucking advocate from, for, you know, up until I became an adult. She was the one that just always had to advocate for me. And I'm so anyway, all this to say, I'm curious to throw this back to you to ask, what do you think people can do? Or what are like some, some tips that you would offer to young patients who don't necessarily feel like they can advocate for themselves or don't necessarily view themselves as their own advocate, what are some like tips that you could give to them so that they do feel empowered to advocate on behalf of their own health? Because I feel like it's, it's one of those things that a lot of people just don't feel like they have the awareness or the, or the confidence to actually do. And yeah. it's obviously, in your case, it's so vitally important because, you know, if you didn't wait those three weeks to see if the, if the, if the you know, if the, the birth control didn't, you know, wasn't like affecting you or whatever, like it, it, time was so of the essence for you there. Yeah. So what would you say to young patients to like encourage them to advocate? Well, I think that this is the reason we started the Copperfield is to mm. help boost that confidence and that encouragement and and to say you're you're not alone in fearing those conversations of going to the doctor like we understand the reason you're not going is because you think you're wasting their time you think this da, 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 da. but 
we're here to dispel all that and tell you that a quick check with and a conversation with a doctor where you say, I know myself really well, is going to go better than if you say, I don't know anything about my body, mm, um, mm. but I need you to tell me what's normal, what's what's not normal, mm-hmm. and if this is sinister or not. Um, and obviously in, in the second scenario, things aren't going to go as well mm. or things aren't going to be investigated as quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, we um, we also give... Um, advice on what to expect when you call the GP and what to expect from the appointment when you're there. Because I think a lot of people are like creating all these horror, horror stories in their minds, like the fact that you can ask for a chaperone to be with you so you don't feel completely on your own if you don't have anyone to take with you to advocate, help advocate for you um, and things like that. I, th- I think they're just fearing things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to educate them and um, make it a slightly less scary. Mm. There's also this, um, like from, that's a, that's a, uh, that, so from the perspective of the, of the patient <laughs> side and advocating and then some, one of my, my sort of, um, I don't know if it's so much of a theory. I feel like it's evolved. It's, it's pretty far evolved past a theory, but the, the, the medical system, um, and when I say the medical system, I'm, I'm like, I'm talking about, talking about like Europe, North America, essentially. Um, my like best understanding is in those places is that medicine for the last hundred years has, has, we've gotten really good at, we've gotten really good at keeping people alive once something is really wrong through antibiotics, cancer treatment, all sorts of things. But moving to the preventative Ooh. side and being able, like when I, because when I hear you say, oh, I went to the doctor and, you know, they, they, they did an examination, but they, they, you know, she said, um, you know, it's normal, whatever. And then you go back and it's like, oh, well, we already checked you. Maybe they're not like really thinking that, but they're going, they're going, you, and this was something that somebody said on the panel too. They went, well, you look well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like there's this, there's this just like simmering notion in the medical system of like, let's not do anything until it's a crisis. Yeah, yeah until their skin is slothing off. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I guess we'll have to like step up here and yeah. make a difference. And, and like, I feel like that plays a big role yeah. in people going and bringing up issues yeah. that, that are like, you know, maybe at that, maybe at that point when you first went, it's like, yeah. you know, it's in, it's at that point where it's, it's really like, it's really preventable or, you know, there's, there's, you know, more like clear paths to, yeah. to nipping in the nip, nipping things in the butt, but for whatever reason, we had I, they had to wait until you couldn't lay on your belly, or that yeah. you were you know that you were like bleeding through your shirts, like yeah. that you know that is, it's that's such a, mm-hmm. it, it just yeah. it, it, like it never ceases to bum me out even more. It's like it totally. just, and it compounds. Like the more I hear it, the more bummed I get because the yeah. because because when you when you go through that like when as soon as you as soon as a person goes it enters into the medical system in a crisis where now you need like this crazy swath of treatment then that makes it harder for that's the that's the thing that makes it harder for doctors to do the preventative thing for mm-hmm. the next person mm-hmm. and it like and it compounds and mm-hmm. like it's hard not, it's hard not to go off on a tangent on on mm-hmm. some of this shit because it's so frustrating yeah it is 
Um, but it, yeah, I don't know what it's like over there, but in the UK, a quarter of cases of cancer are diagnosed in, in the emergency room. Whoa. Oh, wow. Wow. Interesting. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's already gotten so bad by the time they're finally told it's cancer. Yeah. Chris, and that's, you... that would have been my next step is go to A&E and say, yeah. this, there's blood coming out of my nipple. Yeah, yeah. Guys, help me. Chris, do you do you remember what it was like to go from thinking like, oh, this is nothing. I've been told that I I I don't have anything to worry about to going to those appointments where, you know, you were obviously knew something was up and then actually hearing those words that it was cancer? Yeah, but the thing is I really didn't think like I said before, like cancer never crossed my mind. Literally didn't until he said the word. Mm. Um, my grandma had uh, breast cancer when she was 30, but that was like not taken into uh, account, strong mm. account, any, mm-hmm, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it to people <laughs> and she didn't <laughs> die of breast cancer. She died. She had kids and went on to die of uh, the age of 75 with something completely different and so we never really in our heads we were like did you really have it because back then what kind of tests would they have done and da, da, da. so that wasn't a strong link and that didn't make me go well if nana had it surely i've got it mm. or anything like that um and so it really was a complete shock when i found out i had mm. no idea that it could be that bad your favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So again, I, I live with cystic fibrosis. It's a genetic disease. So I was born with it. So it's like, it's literally the only thing that I've known. And there was a good chunk of time in my life, like basically from the age of 10 onwards, where I was very uh, aware of the fact that cystic fibrosis had a shortened life expectancy. And like when I was 10, it was 30 years of age. So that really shaped the way that I sort of viewed life and death over the, you know, over the, the years after, after the age of 10. Um, and I can imagine when you get diagnosed with stage four cancer uh, that there is certainly a time where the thought of your own mortality crosses your mind and you start to ruminate on it and think about it. Um, Living with stage four cancer for 14 years, I'm just curious, like your thoughts on death, how have they evolved over those 14 years? Is it, is it the kind of thing where, you know, as each year passes, do you feel like death is just like, just looming so much more closer or, or 14 years, you know, is it the kind of thing where it just sort of normalizes and, and, and it's not something you think about every single fucking day as though it's like right right yeah. you know on the next day on the calendar yeah i think at first i did um mm-hmm. because i think my only reference to breast cancer at all 
stage four or any stage really was what I'd seen in films and it's always like oof they die uh it's quite serious and um so that was my only reference to it but uh, I stupidly googled life uh, survival rates for breast cancer stage four breast cancer um mm-hmm. one late night um not after not long after my diagnosis and it says average two to three years and um obviously that uh, winded me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um i didn't like, really expect to read that and i shouldn't have uh, should never google things late at night <laughs> um and but thankfully i had a friend who said something really significant to me he said you beat the statistics in getting this breath this disease at your age and i, I really was like mm. 23 is so young to get breast cancer and it's very uncommon um so you'll beat the you'll beat the statistics in surviving it too Hmm. Wow. and that's all I try to remember is like okay I'm such an anomaly for getting this in the first place I can be an anomaly in surviving it too so that's what I focused on but obviously there have been times where I've just thought this is it you mm-hmm. know we're reaching we're reaching the point where there's not many drugs left that I can try or or you know there have been so many scary times scary moments where I just think this is this is it this is it. Mm-hmm. So I haven't felt strongly about um, not dying. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly haven't. There's always been ups and downs with mm-hmm. that. But I think my relationship with dying, death and dying, has become a really healthy one. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad for that now. And, and how? Like, how have you gone about that? Because because I feel like uh, the majority of the people listening to this and the majority of mm-hmm. of society in general does not have a healthy sort of view when it comes to death. You know, we, we're very death phobic. So what, what are the yeah. things that you've done to kind of shift that for you? Um, so I think it helps having a terminal illness. <laughs> it's like, you have a grim reaper literally just <laughs> yeah. there going, yeah. all right, all right, yeah, I know you're here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I... Uh, I'm very interested in things. Like, I want to understand everything. This is why, like, when it comes to my disease, I want to understand what's making it grow, what mutations has it got at the moment, and things like that. I want to know. I need, I need the printout of every blood test that I have. I just this is. I just need to understand things, and that kind of it came to the point where I needed to understand dying, mm. death mm-hmm. a bit more too, because. Um, I read a statistic that the, the sooner you access palliative care, the longer you live. That that's some research that they've done. Like people mm-hmm. that are are in active palliative care treatment, or have someone that they can speak to about, like all that stuff that people assume happens is so wrong that they wheel you into a hospice and then you know speak to you about dying and make, get you ready to die when actually the opposite is actually the truth. And it, it's it's very much about helping you live. Mm. Um, so the sooner I learned that, um, the better. And then I uh, decided to do a uh, end-of-life doula course um, with the University of Vermont online <laughs> a nice. couple of years ago. And 
um, that was again where I just needed to understand things better. Um, I needed to understand how people die, um, the experiences of people that have been by the side uh, of people that have died and what they've learned from that. Mm. And um, and that's actually where I, uh, in one of the resources, they said, listen to this podcast um, with a lady, with a the Sick Boy podcast. And, um, oh, no way. This, listen to this lady called Audrey. Yeah, already knew when she was she was going to die. So, um, oh my I was goodness, so astounded by that episode. That's so, I was just, oh yeah, we did that <laughs> I episode. Love that. I we, love that. We did that episode. Um, so made medical assistance in dying. Um, that was that was that had just been uh, become uh, legislation in Canada yeah. when we did mm-hmm. that. That's right. And we did that episode in front of the Dalhousie Medical School. Dalhousie is like a, a prominent. Prominent medical it's our in Oxford here in Halifax. It, uh, yeah. It, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say I'd say McGill's more like the Oxford, but yeah, yeah, Dalhousie. I mean, yeah. it's it's Halifax's Oxford. Yeah, it's, it's definitely <laughs> Halifax's Oxford, but it's a Canadian. It's a big Canadian university, anyway. Um, and we did that in front of the medical students, and it was like, I mean, it was really, and, and again, like, not to go back to the conference that we were just at for the fourth time today, but two medical students came up to us after we gave a talk, and they were like. Man, we need this in our school, so that so that medical students can understand the perspective of the patient and understand. I think what you were, we were saying earlier, like that the patient is the expert on their body, like they know, so that more and more people that are going out into the world to be doctors and to be to be meeting mm-hmm. people like you coming into their office, bringing in these you know these these issues that that when they know that something is wrong mm-hmm. and that that is going to increase the likelihood that they will you know maybe just because it maybe just because it doesn't coincide what you're bringing to them doesn't perfectly coincide you know what they learned in the in that lecture or in that textbook that there's something to like scratch there's a, <laughs> there's something to to dig into a little bit yeah. there because this person is bringing to me this thing that they feel needs to needs to to have some more attention to, and um, anyway, just like be, being able to have that conversation in front of med students, yeah, and then have that go yeah. to the world, like it was really special. I just, I'm, I'm very, I want to just come back to the fact that you did your death doula training uh, because I also just did it, and and I I didn't do it to become a death doula. I did it, no. I think, in the same way that it seems that you did it, which was just to like. Deep in my vocabulary and understanding about yes. what it means to die, yeah. and one of the one of the things that stood out to me in taking that training um, that got me really excited about the idea of death was when we covered legacy projects or the idea of like creating or leaving behind your own legacy, and and the examples that we kind of covered of other people, uh, the projects that they created or the legacies that they've like tried to leave behind. Um, it just, it, it got me really excited to think about like, uh, what would that be for me? If I was, you know, if I was, if I knew I was going to be dying and I had a couple months left, like what would be the thing that I would want to do to kind of make sense of my life, make sense of the time that I've spent here. Um, now obviously with you, Chris, I mean, you've, you have, you've been leaving these like little nuggets of legacy, uh, throughout the last 14 years with your book and, and with, with the, with the charity, but 
have you put much thought into a sort of legacy project or something that you would like to take part in or do to kind of express that side of yourself before you die or, or, you know, or to include people, your loved ones in your life in this process as you, as you approach death? Um, the thing is, I don't want anything on a to-do list when I die. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) Like, fuck bucket list, because if there was a shitload of things on that list that I haven't done, I'd be lying there going, fuck's sake. Yeah. I've run out of time. Um, So I feel so lucky that I have done some epic things in my life. Um, And I've written a book and I got Copperfield to a stage where it didn't need me uh, to run it full time. Um, And that's what I focus on more than anything. Mm. Um, Earlier this year, I did a a living funeral, um, a funeral. Um, (laughs) And that's when I I think I peaked. I absolutely peaked that day (laughs) because I could look around and look at all the people in my life and be so grateful that they were in my life and that I loved them deeply and that they loved me. And that was enough. Mm. I didn't, there wasn't like, oh, there is this other project that we should do, get Mm. off the ground. Mm -hmm. Because there are other people that can do that. There Mm. are amazing people, clever people that can do that. Um, I can have ideas and pass them on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What 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 is a living funeral? For people who don't know what that is, what what does that mean? What did you do? (laughs) Basically, you um, celebrate your life before you die and people say nice things about you but you're not dead you can listen to them <laughs> did, did, but, what was your itinerary like for like what uh, was the schedule like how long have you got <laughs> yeah <laughs> a lot of, a lot of time to hear about this oh my goodness um, so I held it in a cathedral a local cathedral um, not Sweet. because I'm in any way religious but because it's a beautiful building um, so we did it there and then um, I, I'd like to think that you guys have heard of the Vicar of Dibley. No. Oof, guys. Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. No, 90s comedy sitcom um, <laughs> that we had in the UK. Um, but, Coronation uh, Street? <laughs> but anyway, there was this comedy legend who was a vicar in the show. And I asked her if she could come and... Um, just do a little comedy skit. I didn't want her to do eulogy because she didn't know me that well. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> but uh, she came and she did that and it was amazing. Um, and then my friend, my my twin sister gave um, a speech, obviously. If my friend, another friend did my eulogy. And then we had performances. Um, I had an improv rapper redo the eulogy in his <laughs> that's and amazing I had um, a 20 piece orchestra um, with a scratch DJ um, perform oh all my evening goodness. and it was epic and um, yeah it was and I had my casket I had a casket there um, I, I want to be as eco as possible um, That I know there are other eco options but there, um, I had a cardboard casket on the side of the dance floor that people could write messages on. Oh, nice. And I had some comfort cats because I wanted real cats there, but then actually thought it might be a bit cruel. Um, (laughs) Then I wrote to Ikea and I said, you have these toys um, 
and you have these cat toys. Would you mind sending me a load for people to have on their laps if they're feeling Ooh. a bit oh. sad or need some comforting <laughs> during this during the service? Um, so yeah, it was oh, it was everything and more. It was mm. perfect. Mm, I love wonderful. that. I absolutely mm. love that. I mean, again, and like that is a that's a perfect example of of legacy, right? Like this this thing that you've put together to make meaning of the time that you've had here to bring together your loved ones and like celebrate you and and you know acknowledge like how special you are to them and and what you've meant to them in in their lives. I mean, that's just that's such a beautiful example of of. Uh, of, of like truly embracing death, you know, like mm-hmm. embracing death in a really beautiful way that doesn't have to be all gloom and doom. And it can, and it can, it can actually like leave, I mean, it'll obviously leave yourself, but also leave everybody who was in attendance there more alive than they probably have been in a number of years. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really, really beautiful. Chris, yeah. I, have a, I have a logistical question about planning a living f- funeral and kind of kind of wrapped up in an emotional question too is mm-hmm. is how do you know when to plan right. your living f- funeral because like if you do it and then you live for like another ten years people are gonna be like what the fuck <laughs> like we we had Chris did her living funeral ten years ago what the fuck yeah or they'll go sweet, sweet we, we did it then it again. we're gonna do it again yeah. I think it's more more and more <laughs> but, but I'm curious like I, I imagine yeah. that that's something that you thought about when. Oh, yeah, hugely, and um, and it did cross my mind. And I think, oh, people are going to be pissed off that I didn't <laughs> die literally the day after. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, she's still here. Uh, no, when um, when I did it, it, was I wanted it to, be, to happen in June, in a, a warmish month, um, and earlier in the year, I'd done a psilocybin journey, um, mushroom trip. And it was during that trip, four hours worth of tripping, um, that I organized the whole thing. Cool. So cool. I, it was so fresh in my mind and it, had, it just had to happen. And then, I, yeah, I put the feelings of when will I actually die to one side? Um, and then they kind of resurfaced because, um, yeah, like the last time we were supposed to have this recording, I was in hospital mm. um, with pneumonia and I was really poorly. I was mm-hmm. really, really poorly. And it was, you know, there were moments during that time that I was there that I was thinking, I'm so glad I've done my living funeral. Yeah. I'm so glad I did it. So it doesn't matter when. You could all just do it with them now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter when you celebrate life. It doesn't matter when you gather the people around you that you really care about. You might not like them in 10 years. <laughs> but right now you do. Right yeah. now they mean something to you. Yeah. Totally. And you um, probably won't become a piece of shit like in the time between the funeral and your death. Um, I, I am curious, Chris, to, to ask about, like to come back to the Audrey Parker conversation um, and, and talk about, you know, talking about death. Uh, is Is medical assistance in, in dying an option in the UK? Like, what does that look like there? No, it's not an option. There's campaigning all the time to get it legalised. Mm-hmm. Is that but, something you would consider if it was an option? I want it to be an option. That's what I want. I wouldn't, mm. I don't know what I would do if it was an option, but I want it to, I want mm-hmm. to have the choice to end my life in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
end my life legally uh, <laughs> and with zero judgment and yeah. all the rest of it that comes with it yeah. if you don't do it um, through the right routes. So, yeah, um, at the moment, our only option is to travel to Dignitas in Switzerland right. mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and I recently found out that actually only about 50 or so people do it a year. In Switzerland? Yeah. Oh, wow. What, what is that? I don't, I don't know about... Um, yeah, so it's basically where you can... There's still some, a lot of paperwork you have to do to do that, <laughs> to prove that your family aren't just shipping you off to go and die there. Mm. But um, in, it's a place called Dignitas, and it's uh, where you can legally end your life um, from other countries, um, mm. not just in Switzerland. We covered something about the... Uh, I believe... I don't know if was it was Dignitas from beyond the pods. I think it was. Oh, I believe it was. It was. It was in, it was in Switzerland. Up. I'm yeah. almost certain. But Switzerland uh, over they they've been they've been at the forefront of of like you know um, medical assistance and dying long before Canada was was you know even like considering doing it. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it in the very least that that. That option is there, which is nice, but it's like it, it would be. It would be. It, it it actually surprises me that it's not that it's not uh, that it hasn't like mm-hmm. passed legislation over in the UK because there's there's something really there's something really special about mm-hmm. again just having the option yeah. to do that where you want it, right? Like I think mm-hmm. for me, for me, I, I I probably would. I probably would go through it, go through with it, um, but the the one part about death that like really that I, that still to this day, like I, I've, I've never felt comfortable with the idea of it. I don't want to die. If I have, the, if I have a choice, I definitely don't want to have to die in a hospital. I would yeah. love to be able to yeah. do that. Not in that building, like not in that type of space. I would totally. like to do it in a more, in a, in a space that just feels more connected to me that, you know, that, that I feel comfortable in that I have memories in, you know, like, or, or even outside, you know, like just, just somewhere where I feel, where I feel a connection to the space because yeah, I don't feel, <laughs> I don't think there's anywhere in the world I feel less connected than a fucking hospital. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. You hospital is the worst. I mean, um, great. Thank you for existing, but I don't like it. <laughs> That's right. I don't yeah. like it. So, um, but I it, feel but like, it, but uh, I mean, to have that option to be able to go at least go to another country yeah. to be able to do it, it is. I mean, that's that's definitely that's definitely nice to have. I mean, I feel like yeah. uh, I feel like in Canada and the U. S. Uh, Canada and the U. S. Canada and the U. K. They're they're like I f- I feel like it's like one, on most things it's like one of them is one is just one step behind. You know, like the U. K. does something and then Canada adopts it, or Canada does something and the U. K. adopts it. I feel like it's there's so. Yeah. Hopefully that's something that's coming down. Well, I can't wait until Canada adopts uh, making it okay to just like take your pint onto the sidewalk and have yeah, a little sippy sip. Yeah, that's you know? the, yeah, that's the, that's uh, we've been lagging behind, and we're about to take Canada. that leap. Um, Chris, what is what does that look like? What does it look like for you? I mean, it's been fourteen years. You know, the stats obviously out the window. Um, it, like, is is your life expectancy just like is it back to just being a total mystery, or or how, what does that look like? Uh not really because I'm, I mean, I'm having chemotherapy at the moment and um, we yet to find out if it's doing anything useful. Um, I'm having a scan tomorrow, actually. Um, so, no, there is still no how long is a piece of string. Like, that, we don't know the answer to that. Um, but, do you know, what? I was only saying yesterday how 
the longer I survive, the more pressure um, I feel um, for people that are kind of looking to me for that long survivorship. Mm, um, and because yeah. I've I've got a, a fairly big profile here in terms of person with cancer who's written a book and you know started a charity. Um, like you've I, become that example. Like you've become yeah. that. Like well, if she did it, then maybe I can. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad I can be a glimmer of hope, but I don't mm. want it to become um, because it worries me that when I do die, they are going to be so, so disappointed. <laughs> and I think, well, how long should I survive for this to be like really great? When will you be okay with dying? And and I'd, I'd rather people focus on that and kind of look at well, what mm. what does your life look like right now? Mm-hmm. Focus on right now rather than this potential long survivorship. Mm. Um, we wanted to find out if there were people who survived this for a long time. So I do, I do get it. I absolutely do get it. Mm-hmm. But the longer I've had it, the more I've understood what is important because I just don't want, I don't want to take drugs that are going to make my life miserable. Yeah. That's not worth surviving for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible, this is a, this is a, a a brutal comparison to make, but like recently there was a, there was an article, there's been a a thing that's been making its way around like every feel good news site in the world, which is this dog that lived to be 31 years old. Yeah. And like, and to your point about that, that like how people kind of like how you end up like how you end up being represented um, or, or feeling to, to people that are in a similar position as you like, you, I can, I hear it on the street. I've heard people go, "I saw this article, and like maybe my dog will live to be thirty years old." Yeah, right. I've said that, and you're like, yeah, Brian said it. I heard somebody on the street <laughs> saying it, not you. I heard, like, I overheard that, and you get, you're going, yeah. I mean, like it, it, it does create that. Mm. It does create that thing, yeah. that yeah. like expect, like an uh, expect expectation or so, or something like that. That's yeah. That's like, but the question should be, how happy was that dog? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, like in 30, years, 31 years old. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Christ, a 31 year old dog, that's like a, that's like a 221 year old human. You know, like, like if you're that old, oh, it can't be good. It can't be good. To that point, Chris, um, how happy are you? Oh, oh good question. Um, yeah, pretty happy. Pretty, mm. pretty happy. And I think that I'm, it's my guiding light, like quality of life, what's happening there. And um, thankfully, I have an oncologist who really understands that. So when we make decisions about treatments, he needs to consider, well, Chris's life looks like this. Mm. And this is what's meaningful to Chris. And um, that's how we make decisions on treatments, mm. next treatments and things. But yeah, right now, I'm I'm pretty happy. I have a Nephew who turns four in a few days, Ooh, and wow. <laughs> I'm so happy I get to see that. Um, yeah. How, how and and how do you manage your? How have you managed your your mental health th- through this experience? With you know the consideration of of the pressure that maybe you feel from the outside world, and you know the stresses of of dealing with treatment and thinking about you know the end of your life. Um, I am quite good at tuning out of things, tuning out of cancer because it's been so long. I've kind of had to work out a way to do that. And that, um, 
that can be a walk on the beach because I live right by the sea. Um, Or spending time with friends who distract me entirely from it. Mm. So um, recently I've gotten myself a palliative care nurse who uh, is so great because she deals with cancer admin for me. There was a day where mm. I was just like, I'm so sick of having mm-hmm. to call a hospital or do this and do that. And like, isn't there someone who could do this for me? <laughs> and then this e- this magic email popped into my inbox and they said, and it was someone who oversees all of the sort of end of life care in the southwest of England. And, I, and we hadn't spoken for so long. I was like, I need you right now. I mm. need you to find me someone who can help me. Um who I can speak to and who's very useful mm-hmm. and can get me masks and things and Oromorph. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's she's really great. And, you know, um, I want more people to understand that palliative care is not about dying. Mm. Yeah, really, a really important message because there's a lot of people out there that I think have the wrong... The wrong notion of what palliative care means and what it's there for and how it can be utilized. Um, Chris, I just want to say that uh, we are so glad that we've had an opportunity to speak to you and get some insight into the way that you've handled these last 14 years. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm really grateful for, uh, for our listeners who literally reached out to us to reach out to you. Yeah, um, so great. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just so nice that you, that you decided to take time out of your schedule uh, to sit down and, and share this with us. So thank you so much for being uh, so open and so, so vulnerable with, with the three of us. And uh, we, we're, we're big fans. So thank you. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you for having me. there you go folks hope you enjoyed that conversation as always we are coming at you mondays wednesdays and fridays and if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast there's a number of ways you can do that first of all you can leave a rating or a review on apple Podcasts. we love reading them you can simply rate the podcast on the spotify mobile app if that's where you're listening or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.